Welcome back to Tequila She Wrote, a podcast about cocktails and true crime. I'm Sloan, your bartender for today. And I'm Trish, your crime tender. And today we're bringing you the stories of Charles Morgan, aka Chuck. And I'm excited to hear about this one, as excited as one can be about true crime. Because <laughs> um, I've never heard of this. So without further ado, we'll kick you off to the episode. Welcome back to another round of Bartending with Sloan. We are bringing back the Moonshine series. And this round, we're going to be discussing uh, Sugarland's Distillery, Sugarland Moonshine Company. We both visited together and separately (laughs) (laughs) in Gatlinburg and fell in love. The one that I want to talk to you today is the one, it's the Butter Pecan Sipping Cream. And I cannot keep a jar of this in my house to save my life. I will finish it in less than a week. I guarantee you once it's opened and I open a new one today so I can confirm next time we record. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. But it's so smooth and just, it's a great dessert drink. It's great with coffee as a creamer. If you need a little extra something, an extra pep in your step for the it's day. It's only 40%. I mean, it's fine. It's not that heavy on the alcohol, not by any means. And it's just smooth, like melted ice cream. Yes. Like melted butter pecan ice cream, which is why I freaking love this shit. So if that sounds good to you, definitely check them out. I believe they do shipping if your state allows it. But I highly, highly recommend, and if you make your way to Gatlinburg or anywhere else that they have a distillery open, definitely check this one out. They usually do tastings at moonshine places for like $5 or less. We are in an inflation period, so that might go up. But still, you get to try like six to ten different moonshines, depending on where you are. Beyond worth the money to test out different moonshines. And this is one of the ones that's usually on their roster whenever we've gone in the past. So definitely check this out. We thoroughly enjoy it. We hope you enjoy it too and enjoy our case. All right. So today's case, like we said, is about Charles Morgan, or as I'm going to refer to him, Chuck, because that's what his wife refers to him as and like the whole, all the articles I felt like, I used, they all call him Chuck, but this is a case that I know I've seen, and I don't know if I've seen it just on, like, Unsolved Mysteries, or if, like, one of our podcasts covered it, but I know, like, I've at least heard of it, but didn't know all the details, and as I researched it, like, I was telling Sloan, it's one that was like, wait, what? I think you're going to enjoy it because there's a lot of conspiracy theory around it. I love my tinfoil hat. (laughs) So, without any further ado, we will jump on in. So, our case begins March 22nd, 1977 in Tucson, Arizona. Escrow company owner Chuck Morgan 
left his home as usual, but then he just disappears for three days. An interesting side note is that Chuck was a potential witness in a state land fraud case involving a known crime boss. So this has mafia tie-ins too, which I find so interesting to me. My, yeah, I'm convinced that somewhere in my family is a mob connection. My um, mom's side is Italian, like, from the Rome area, like, of Italy. And, that, and my grandfather <laughs> is, like, heavy, heavy Italian. <laughs> and so I'm like, there's gotta be some sort of mob connection somewhere in my family. My mom is convinced that her grandfather is an Irish mobster, so I feel you. <laughs> I feel like they're going to be coming for us now. Sorry. <laughs> we have no proof, just theories. Leave right. us alone. Uh, so, on March 25th, Chuck just kind of stumbles home at 2 a.m. and his wife, Ruth, woke up when she heard a loud thump on the back door. She said she heard the dog barking and got up and walked to the door. When she opened it, Chuck was there, missing one shoe with plastic handcuffs around one ankle and a pair around his hands. I don't know what I would do if I woke up and that was the first thing I saw. I'm sure my mind be racing through a few things, like, what the fuck happened? And then, like, is this what you're into? <laughs> Uh, so she sees this like image of her husband basically staying there with like handcuffs and everything and then he motions to his throat and didn't say a word and she asks can you talk can you write and he nods yes so she went and got a pen and like a notepad for him to write on and this is where this story just gets a little strange. So on the notepad, he wrote that his throat had been painted with a hallucinogenic drug and claimed the drug would drive him insane and destroy his nervous system and kill him if he spoke. All right, then. <laughs> like I said, this, this story, literally, as I'm researching, I was just like, wait, What? <laughs> Did not see that turn coming. So she wanted to call a doctor and the police, but he warned that um, he would it would basically be a death sentence to like him and the family if she got anyone involved. So for the next week, Ruth nursed him back to health, but before his voice came back, he hinted at something else. He wrote that he had a secret identity as an agent for a federal government. He said they took his treasury identification and that he would, like, he had been working for them for about two to three years. I'm like, are you sure the drug has not affected you yet, sir? But he's very serious about this. So another little side note 
at this time in the 1970s, the mafia had established Arizona as kind of like a pipeline for narcotics and a haven for money laundering with more than like 500 racketeers like in Arizona. So Arizona was such an attractive place because of a law that made it easy for land to be bought up through blind trust accounts, making it easy to launder money without it being traced. So, Chuck had done some real estate escrow for at least one mafia family, and he had possibly also helped with the purchase of gold bullion and platinum, and these made more convenient ways to launder money. I think what happened was just he kind of was, like, helping somebody with some real estate things, didn't realize what he was getting into, and then before he knew it, he was just kind of, like, caught up in the whole mess. So, Don Devereaux, a journalist investigating Chuck's story, said Chuck was around the edge of a few large organized crime groups. He suspected he got in over his head, doing upwards to a billion dollars of escrow work. Kind of like what I just said. So, Ruth claimed she knew about the money laundering, but said Chuck had told her the less she knew, the best for her and their girls. So, after his kidnapping, he wore a bulletproof vest, and he was the only one that would drive his daughters to and from school. About two months after his first disappearance, he went missing again. And nine days later, Ruth Ruth received a phone call. Ruth claims that the phone call went like this. Ruthie? Yes. Chuck is all right. Followed by this mysterious woman that had called saying, Ecclesiastes, if I can, I can never even say this right. Ecclesiastes. Yes. (laughs) Twelve one through eight, and then she hung up. So if you're like me, you don't have, you know, these Bible verses just memorized off the top of your head. So that passage reads, Men are afraid of a high place and of terrors on the road. Remember him before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. So, there's a few ways you can kind of go with that. I mean, it's it's the Bible. I feel like it just talks in circles, and people interpret it wrong all the time, so... That's a story for another day, but keep that verse kind of in mind. You don't really have to remember the words so much, but remember like Ecclesiastes uh, 12, 1 through 8. So two days later, Chuck's body was found wearing his bulletproof vest with a single bullet fired close range in the back of his head. The bullet was found to have come from his own uh, .357. Again, not a gun person. 
can't even really tell you, like, there are people that are like, yeah, 35 Magnum. I'm like, what? <laughs> Nate, are you awake? <laughs> <laughs> so his um, 0.357 Magnum was, like, where the bolt was found to come from. And it was found laying beside him. They also found directions written on a piece of paper in his handwriting to the murder site and sunglasses, which didn't belong to him. They also found ammunition, weapons, and a CB radio in one of Morgan's teeth wrapped in a handkerchief. No, thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Another strange discovery made by police was a $2 bill clipped inside his underwear. Written on the bill were seven Spanish names beginning with the letters A through G. Also written on the bill above the names was Ecclesiastes. Yes. Twelve with the verses 1 through 8 marked by arrows drawn on the serial number. On the back of the bill, the signers of the Declaration of Independence are numbered 1 through 7, and there is a roughly drawn map on the bill also. That map leads to an area between Tucson and Mexico to the towns of Robles Junction and Solicity, I think is how it's said. Both of these are known for smuggling. So, a $2 bill has so much information. And I feel like it is not focused on enough in this whole investigation. Well, a lot of people believe that $2 bills are bad luck. Yeah. Yeah. So, many in the sheriff's department believe Chuck had committed suicide. They claimed he shot himself in the back of the head. So, even with the unusual evidence and the fact that he had been shot in the back of the head, not the usual placement for a self-inflicted gunshot wound, police believed he committed suicide. Make it make sense. I can't. Ruth also said Chuck wouldn't kill himself even if he had thought about it without, like, leaving a note for her and the girls or even just, you know, kind of saying a goodbye. John Devereaux also points out the fact that he went to the desert wearing a bulletproof vest and he shot himself in the back of the head. Like, it makes no sense at all. So... Two days after Chuck's death, a woman called Pima, I think is how it's said. I don't know. It's the sheriff's department that's taking care of this whole case. She calls the sheriff's department and she claimed Chuck had come to meet her at a motel before he died. She called herself Green Eyes and said she was the same woman who had called his wife quoting the Bible like passage that ended up also being on that $2 bill. At the motel, she claimed Chuck had shown her a briefcase with thousands of dollars in it. She was told the money would buy him out of a contract killing put out on him. 
theory goes, the mob put a hit on him and the hitman told Chuck about it and told him how much, like, basically to buy him off. So Chuck gets this money, shows up to the desert, and the hitman kills him anyway and takes the money. Of course. Devereaux believed that Chuck didn't know what he'd gotten involved with and said it was possible that he was involved with the government and that he was just so naive to what was going on and who he was actually involved with and that his cover had gotten blown and that led to him being killed, which it's as good a theory as anything else because this case just... Literally, with the little information that there is on it, it's like, you can see how people are like, tinfoil hat, tinfoil hat. Me. Right. So, after his death, Chuck's impounded car was broken into while in police custody, and his office was also ransacked. So, again... Who would be looking for stuff? Either the government, or the mob, or both. Probably both. Ruth also said that three weeks after her husband died, two men claiming to be FBI came to her home. They showed their ID, like, super fast and closed it before she could even, like, really truly see, you know, if the credentials are real. And they said that they, yeah, yeah, they said they wanted to come in and search the house. She said, to this day, she still has no idea what they were looking for. They tore the house apart and found nothing they were looking for. And Ruth has been, like, sorry. (laughs) They didn't find, like, anything they were looking for. And Ruth said that at the time she was so upset about, like, everything that had happened that she didn't even write down the men's names. So no one knows that they're truly FBI. Hmm. Which, again, government, mob, who knows? You have a grieving widow who is just probably trying to be strong for her girls, trying to figure out what the hell happened to her husband. And you just got two guys being like, yeah, FBI. Devereaux reached out to the FBI, actually, and they claimed they didn't know a Chuck Morgan. You're telling me that you don't know a Chuck Morgan, but yet you somehow were also kind of involved in this case and there's no, like, file or anything. It makes absolutely zero sense. So, Devereaux believes if Chuck was involved with the government, the $2 bill was a way to slip information to the FBI and it could so that it could be further analyzed. And so, there might be even more information on this $2 bill that, like, us not even knowing, like, what we're looking for, we overlook it. So, to this day, there are no suspects in his death. And it remains a mystery, but it is heavily believed that the mob has a connection to his death. And, 
like I said, this case, I'm, I know I've heard about it, but I don't know, like, how I've heard about it. But this case originally appeared on Unsolved Mysteries, February 7th, 1990. So, I highly doubt I saw it when it originally aired, because I would have been, like, two. <laughs> A very impressionable age. Right. <laughs> I would have been, like too so I could have seen it in like a rerun maybe because I've been a crime junkie for a long time okay me and my sister used to Since always she was too <laughs> me and my sister used to always watch Unsolved Mysteries we loved that show and I love like I think um, Discovery Plus has like the old episodes and I love just kind of throwing it on as background noise every so often one it will give me some cases every so often be like maybe I'll look into that but this has also appeared on some other like crime shows so again like I said I could possibly have seen it on something else we have talked about many a times before Discovery Plus is one of our favorite little apps and I think for my different reasons <laughs> I thank my friend Sarah for giving me her login because that is the greatest investment ever for me if I didn't have hers, I would probably have bought my own by this point. But that is my case. Like I said, it's one that, like, as I was researching, I was like, wait, what? It just spirals in so many ways because it's, like, it's rolled a suicide. But no one actually believes it was a suicide. And there's so many things that can pin it to, like, a mob cover-up or, like, a mob and government cover-up. Like, it's so... Yeah. I'm sure... Mind-boggling. Yeah, I'm sure if I would've had all the time in the world, I could've done a spiral down, like, some rabbit holes, some conspiracy theory rabbit holes, but that's a Sloan thing. Sloan likes to find her little tinfoil hat rabbit I holes. Like I like to think that the rabbit holes find me. <laughs> I don't search for them. I just fall down them. But instead, I thought it was an interesting one. It's one that's not too um, over the top uh, morbid. So I was like, this will be a, a good one to ease back into our crime after the casket girls, which is more like a almost folklore type of a thing. Funzy. Yeah. But... With that being said, I guess we will kick you off to the last call. All right. For today's last call, I just started Googling random things, trying to find something. And I stumbled upon this topic. So today we're going to talk about the curious origins of 16 common phrases. Some of these phrases I've never even heard. Essentially, originally I was looking for, like, where did it's raining cats and dogs come from, but that's not even on this list. So I don't know how I got to this <laughs> list. <laughs> it's very on brand for me, though. So the first one is by the same token. This is one of those that I had never heard before, but it says bus token, game token. What kind of token is involved here? Token is a very old word referring to something that's a symbol or sign of something else. It could be a pat on the back as a token or sign of friendship or a marked piece of lead that could be exchanged for money. It came to mean a fact or piece of evidence that could be used as proof. 
by the same token, first meant basically those things you use to prove that can also be used to prove this. It was later weakened into the expression that just says these two things are somehow associated. Okay. So, never heard that one. The second one I have definitely heard all my life. And if you know me, you'll know why. Get on a soapbox. <laughs> the soapbox that people mount when they get on a soapbox is actually a soapbox, or rather one of the big crates that used to hold shipments of soap in the late 1800s. Yep, I knew that. Would-be motivators of crowds would use them to stand on a makeshift podium to make proclamations, speeches, or sales pitches. The soapbox then became a metaphor for spontaneous speech making or getting on a roll about a favorite topic. And if you know me at all, like, I am very, I can be very chill. It's not often, but I can be chill. But, like, whenever I. We both have points that, like, if you start talking, we're like, all right, hold on. I definitely get on the soapbox. <laughs> And sometimes I don't mean to, and sometimes I purposely stand up there and tie on my cape and oh, make yes. the fight. <laughs> and then sometimes I make an argument, and later on people are like, do you know how stubborn you sounded? Like, you weren't backing down from the fight. And I'm like, I wasn't fighting. And they're like, uh, yeah, you were. <laughs> and I'm like, oh. We're both stubborn people, okay? It happens. I showed Sloan my, um astrology placement to the best that like I can figure it out because my mom cannot find the little like she hasn't actively looked but she can't find my birth certificate <laughs> to like get me the exact time but like all of my placements are like stubborn placements and I'm like oh, this explains so much yeah she found out that she's like part Taurus and I'm like Oh, like we're got, not supposed to get along. I have like Taurus, Scorpio, Gemini, Aries, Sagittarius. <laughs> I'm like <laughs> all the things, all the things. All right. So the third phrase is tomfoolery. The notion of tomfool goes a long way back. It was the term of a foolish person as long ago as the Middle Ages. Thomas Fattis in Latin. Much in the way the names in the expression Tom, Dick, and Harry are used to mean some generic guys, Tom Fool was the generic fool. <laughs> With the added implication that he is particularly an absurd one. So the word tomfoolery suggested an incidence of foolishness that went a bit beyond more foolery. We have a manager at our mutual job together, and he will literally be like, who let Tom in the back door? <laughs> Who let Tom in the back door? I don't know. And now we have a dishwasher named Tom. Oh, <laughs> I haven't been there in like, what, three months? Yeah. Almost two months, yeah. I guess. You better pick up a shift before you're deleted out the system. Uh, number four, go bananas. The expression go bananas is slang and the origin is a bit harder to pin down. It became popular in the 1950s around the same time as go ape. So there have been some associations between apes, bananas, and crazy behavior. Also, banana is just a funny-sounding word, and in the 1920s, people said banana oil to mean nonsense. To which I say, banana oil. <laughs> <laughs> Number five, run-of-the-mill. If something is run-of-the-mill, it's average, ordinary, nothing special. But does it have to do with milling? It most likely originally referred to a run from a textile mill. 
It's the stuff that's just been manufactured before it's been decorated or embellished. There were related phrases like run of the mine for chunks of coal that hadn't been sorted by size yet and run of the kiln for bricks as they came came out without being sorted for quality yet. So I'm still confused on that one. Yeah. Read the Riot Act. When you read someone the Riot Act, you give a stern warning, but what is it that you sh- you would be the but what is it that you would have been reading? The Riot Act was a British law passed in 1714 to prevent riots. It went into effect only when read aloud by an official. If too many people were gathering and looking ready for trouble, an officer would let them know that if they didn't disperse, they would face punishment. So essentially, like, it wasn't a, a law until it was verbally put into place. So, like, really an officer could just, like, yeah, read the Riot Act. Hands down comes from horse racing, where if you're way ahead of everyone else, you can relax your grip on the reins and let your hands down. When you win hands down, you win easily. I'm like, that That makes sense. I don't know a yeah. lot about horses, so of course I never put two and two together there. That's fine. But, like, that totally makes sense, and I use that phrase very often, so I'm glad to know where it came from. Yeah. The silver lining is the optimistic part of what might otherwise be gloomy. The expression can be traced back directly to a line from Milton from a dark cloud revealing a silver lining or a halo of bright sun behind the gloom. The idea became part of literature and part of culture, giving us the proverb, every cloud has a silver lining in the mid-1800s, and it's stuck around ever since. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, the expression, you've got your work cut out for you, comes from tailoring. To do a big sewing job, all the pieces of fabric are cut out before they get sewn together. It seems like if your work has been cut out for you, it should be it should make the job easier. But we don't use the expression that way. The image is more that your task is well defined and ready to be tackled, but all the difficult parts are yours to get to. That big pile of cutoffs isn't going to sew itself together. Makes sense. Through the grapevine. A grapevine is a system of twisty tendrils going from cluster to cluster. The communication grapevine was first mentioned in 1850s, the telegraph era. Where the telegraph was a straight line of communication from one person to another, the grapevine telegraph was a message passed from person to person with some likely twist along the way. I think in our generation, it's definitely more of a telephone. Yeah. Like, I don't use through the grapevine often, but... Oh, throw it out every so often, but... I know what it means whenever it's said, but it's not something that I use in my vocabulary consistently. Yeah. This is my favorite one from the list. The whole shebang. <laughs> I have always I wanted always to know. I use this. I use this all the time. I love it. And I'm so excited to learn what it means. So the earliest uses of shebang were during the Civil War era, referring to a hut, shed, or cluster of bushes where you're staying. Some officers wrote home about, quote, running the shebang, meaning the encampment. The origin of the word is obscure, but because it's also applied to a tavern or drinking place, it may go back to the Irish word shebeen. Shebeen? Shebeen? I looked this up on Google earlier, I promise, and I just... (laughs) I'm part Irish and I don't know. Could you imagine, though, like, because back then, obviously, it's not like you call someone, you send a letter, it takes forever... If if you have someone that's writing you and they say like the shebang and you're like I would think something what? went shaboom. You'd be like, the what? 
I would have thought something went shaboom. <laughs> but like, I'd be like, wait, what are you talking about? <laughs> but but yeah. you'd have to wait like how long before you get a response. a response if you even got one. Yeah. Yeah. Be walking around. Where's what? What shebang man? <laughs> Has anybody else's man mentored a shebang? <laughs> Is it a shebang? What are they doing over there? Is there a woman involved? It's, it's a she. And they bang. What is going on over there? Whose man has said something about a shebang? Do I need to beat some woman's ass? Clearly. <laughs> uh, Alright, so the Irish word shebang, 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 whatever, it, however it's said. It means a ramshackle drinking establishment, so a tavern and all that. Yeah. So, yeah. But I use the whole shebang for everything. Yeah. It's not all that in a bag of chips. It's the whole shebang. Uh, Twelve. Push the envelope belongs to the modern era of the airplane. I would have not have put that together. No. The flight envelope is a term from aeronautics, meaning the boundary or limit of performance of a flight object. The envelope can be described in terms of mathematical curves based on things like speed, thrust, and atmosphere. You push it as far as you can in order to discover what the limits are. Tom Wolfe's The Right Stuff brought the expression into wider use. Push the envelope. Pushing the envelope. However you want to say it. Uh, yeah. Right over my head. We say someone can't hold a candle to someone else when their skills don't even come close to being as good. In other words, that person isn't even good enough to hold up a candle so that that a talented person can see what they're doing in order to work. Holding the candle to light a workspace would have been the job of an assistant, so it's a way of saying not even fit to be an assistant, much less the artist. Well, damn. <laughs> That's like a southern ladies, bless your, your heart. heart. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the acid test. Most acids dissolve other metals much more quickly than gold, so using acid on a metallic substance became a way for gold prospectors to see if it contained gold. If you pass the acid test, you didn't dissolve. You're the real thing. I've never heard of that one. I was going to say, I've never heard of it. Go haywire. What kind of wire is haywire? Just what it says. A wire for baling hay. In addition to tying up the bundles, haywire was used to fix and hold things together in a makeshift way, so a dumpy, patched-up place came to be referred to as a haywire outfit. It then became a term for any kind of malfunctioning thing. The fact that the wire itself got easily tangled when unspooled contributed to the messed-up sense of the word. I've definitely heard that phrase. I don't yeah. use it often, but I've definitely heard it. And lastly, called on the carpet. Carpet used to mean a thick cloth that would be placed in a range of places, on the floor, on the bed, on a table, etc. The floor carpet is the one we use most now, so the image most people associate with this phrase is one where a servant or employee is called from a plainer, carpetless room to the fancier carpeted part of the house, but it actually goes back to the tablecloth meaning. When there was an issue up for discussion by some kind of official council, it was on the carpet. I was about to say, I've never heard that before. I've definitely heard it's on the table. I would say I've heard it's on the table. So I feel like that's kind of what we've transitioned that one into. Maybe. Uh, 
but this was definitely a great, interesting learning experience. Yeah. I'm one of those people that I love to tuck away random knowledge in my back noggin. It kind of, I've been watching The Big Bang Theory. <laughs> and I am very much like Sheldon in that sense, where I'm going to spout off any random bits of knowledge that I have for you to learn. Because I don't give a shit about the useful stuff. I just want to know the useless stuff. Like, where do these catchphrases come from? But thanks for hanging out with us today. We appreciate it. We loved hanging out with you. If you want to catch us on our social medias, we have Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, all that stuff. They are tequila, she wrote, across the board. You can also email us if you have any suggestions for cocktails, cases, or even last calls. Tequila, she wrote, at gmail.com. We also have our Patreon set up. As of recording right now, I have all of the episodes that you find on like your Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all that ad-free up on our Patreon. It is same as here. You can find it. Tequila. She wrote the easiest way to find it is doing patreon.com backslash tequila. She wrote, Mm -hmm. I believe. Or you can go to like our link tree and you get like a direct link to send you there for as little as two dollars a month you get ad-free episodes and pay a little more you get some more bonus episodes and you get some merch it's you know it's all explained over there if we don't have something that you see that we maybe should look into you know again reach out let us know we're always open to suggestions and yeah Catch us every Tuesday and Friday. And thanks for riding on the Hot Mess Express. Toot toot. Beep beep.